News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. Oh, to kick off a Monday morning with Dodgeball. Such a great, great movie. And you know what? That feeling, you know it when you should go exercise, but you just can't make yourself do it. I mean, of course, everyone has had that feeling, right? For some people, going to the gym makes you kind of feel like that, that that's how you're going to be treated and you just can't do it. So is that why we avoid it? Because we do avoid it, even though the human body is built for exercise and we need it. That's true. So what happens to us? Well, Dr. Dean Burnett is with us now, a neuroscientist and author of Emotional Ignorance. Dr. Burnett, thanks for being back with us. Well, thanks for having me yet again. Much appreciated. Why do we procrastinate, Dr. Burnett? Why can't we make ourselves go to the gym or exercise when we know we should? (laughs) Lots of different reasons. Like you say, there are certain types of people of different types of life, which make it kind of uh, difficult. But at the most... um, fundamental level uh, there's a sort of uh, system in our brain that's sort of evolved to discourage us from spending too much effort on something and getting no reward and you can sort of see how that would be a good survival trait because obviously if you're like a an individual who lives in the wild like you spend 17 hours chasing a single mouse obviously you spend a lot of energy and you're not going to get it back so you know, your brain's always running these calculations of okay so if i do this i put this much effort into it is it worth it and in order to answer that, these are very basic systems. Like the the reward has to be usually quite quite rapid, quite you know, it happens straight away. Exercise doesn't do that. You know, it involves weeks and months of putting in considerable and constant physical effort, and the gains you see are sort of gradual. And you know, um, you know there's not sort of one cutoff point where you're suddenly fit now. So yeah, these are all sort of things. Our, these are hurdles our brain sort of has to get over. So yeah, I could go to the gym for like two and a half hours, or I could not and do something more productive. And that's <laughs> for a lot of people, that is a big, a big step to take. Right. But if you ask people how they feel after they have that bout of exercise, they'll probably tell you that I, they feel great and they're so glad they did it. Yes, um, that's something. Yeah, you know that after it's happened. Uh, but I think you know to get the original motivation to get in the first place is. Um, is a bigger deal than I think people give it credit for. I mean, I've been seeing a personal trainer for like a you know, nearly two years now, and thus far, I have never had that buzz of like a oh, that was great. <laughs> it's always been just never come you know, on like hours of no, maybe like seven hours later, I feel better because the pain has stopped. But that's the that, oh, I think some people don't have it as much. I just I've been working for it. I don't know. I haven't sort of tried, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like I went like like an hour ago, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> it, it, like it's like did it fun today?" Is well, fun is a very subjective measure of anything, really. But uh, yeah, so I think it's not as you know, reliable as perhaps it should be or could be. Are we trained for this? Then is our brain somehow wired to want to do minimum effort for maximum reward? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's a big part of modern life, and that that's why. You know, physical health is such a big concern for a lot of people. I mean, we, if you imagine, like, you know, in the, not in the olden days, like, you know, a few decades ago, if you wanted sort of you know, junk food, it was hard to come by. You had to get up and go and get it. And now we live in a world where you can summon junk food to your door with a touch of a button. 
So you get like maximum calories, minimum effort. And there are loyalty parts of your brain which like that. They go, that's great. That's, that's exactly how it should be. Luckily, we have other parts of the brain which sort of work against that. The ambition part, the part which make you realize that, yes, this will be a short-term reward, but you know you won't gain anything from it. And you are miserable because you don't you know, you have enough energy to go out and do stuff. So there's lots of different parts of the brain working against each other. And like uh, in an you know, idle situation, when they finally sort of when the calculations are done, the ones which make you do stuff went out. And that's, uh, that's sort of what we're all sort of striving for. Is motivation and willpower, is that something that is flexible? Does it depend on the person? Yeah, it'll, t- it'll, be, it'll vary considerably from person to person and within the person. Like You can have tremendous willpower to do something which most people would consider hard and you know, difficult, but in a different context. Like you know, I know people who do stand-up comedy and some people could never, ever... Uh, consider doing such a thing but the people who can never do that are the ones who will also just go to the gym for two hours a day because they have that their willpower in that regard but not in other regards so but you so can learn different you can reward system right stuff. so what you're saying is our brains different have system, different yeah. reward systems oh well uh, the same reward system triggered by different things obviously some people love that and some people hate the idea and some people will happily spend two hours in the gym and people like me are thinking i'm I got stuff to be doing. <laughs> I can't really. Uh, <laughs> can, I, can I justify three hours on a treadmill? I don't think I can. So uh, it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, it's all I, the balance. I, I do wonder how that applies to sort of human evolution, right? Because obviously, if we didn't exercise and we didn't look after ourselves, we the body would not be able to like you know evolve. Yeah, totally. I mean, we are evolved to move. That's like one of the sort of main traits of humans. And when it comes to all the species, the one thing we have over every other species is our ability to keep going like a long distance running is a uniquely human trait i think like people say like you we can't run as fast as like cheetahs or horses but given distance we'll always win a race because the way our bodies are built means we can keep going and other creatures cannot so yeah we have evolved essentially to keep going but you know all this exercise and effort comes at a cost you know we, we need to have you know downtime and rest periods and that's something else we don't give ourselves much these days we we don't sleep enough we're always doing something so you know, if, if you are someone who does work you know like eight hours a day in a strenuous hard job fair enough but then you probably will sleep for a good eight hours solidly because you're exhausted and yeah our modern lifestyles don't really lend themselves to that we're always you know always got something which keeps us up and that, but uh, that's that so out. that's so interesting though the way you describe it though is that we have evolved for extended kind of physical exertion that is what our bodies are designed for and yet our brain almost sometimes seems to work against that yeah um you know we've evolved so we can do that but i don't think that's necessarily meant to be the, the default we, we we have the ability to experience like incredible pleasure and stuff but when you start trying to do that all the time like you know, that's where you get things like drug addictions you know like your brain says no, no this is this is like a, a rare treat this is not meant to be a constant and you know when you start doing it constantly then you have to adapt to it and that changes things so you know we aren't meant to expend all our energy just running around all day every day unless you're like three years old in which case that's exactly what they do but that's um that's a whole other story but uh, yeah so we've all to be able to do it but not to do it all the time so like our brain wants us to not just constantly burn off all our calories and then just collapse in a heap and stay there until we're eaten <laughs> which we don't do anymore thank goodness okay so then what yeah. is can we train our brain to want to go and do this or is this always going to be an ongoing battle i mean look at you you're a doctor and you have the ongoing battle <laughs> yeah. but you know some people will have, have it fine like obviously i have a personal trainer who's half my age and just says 
you should be in the gym three hours a day. So you can. This is your job. I have other things to do. So, uh, but there is, um, you know, you get to a point where you realize, okay, uh, what I'm doing right now is not making me happy anymore. And you, so you, you feel like you want to. Like if you, you know, when you're young, you can sort of get away with just you know indulging and uh, burning off calories quite quickly, just by doing go about your daily life. When you hit like middle age, your priorities change. Like you know, I. I never was a gym person, but then I have small children now, and uh, you know I want to see them grow up, and I want to be there for them and do things with them, and that sort of changed my whole perspective on uh, what I was meant to be doing. So, like, like, well, if I don't get into some better shape, I can't do that, and that's 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 not acceptable to me. And you no, know, right. your priorities and your lifestyle changes, and we have to find our priorities and our own motivation. It sounds like, Doctor Burnett, thanks so much for your time. No problem at all. Anytime. Good, good luck at the gym. That is Dr. Dean Burnett, neuroscientist and author of Emotional Ignorance, about how we talk ourselves out of these things. That the body, the human body, is built for exercise. I mean, really, why do we avoid it? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little bit more about hobbies this morning. We just heard about exercise. The human body is kind of made for it, and yet it we still fight it, right? Our brain fights the physical activities that our body kind of needs, and people do consider exercise to be a hobby. Scott Shantz is with us this morning. Scott, do you consider exercise a hobby? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I know some people who are a bit too serious about it, like it's oh. their whole entire personality, you know? Like they're, It's like everything is about the gym and fitness, and I think that's great, but when it's like you can't even go out for dinner because everything has to be measured and macroed and I don't even know, like all of that, all of the details, you know? sound like young people. Yes. And (laughs) I think that there, I think that that, but also, I mean, I know people my age that are, that are that obsessive about it. And I mean, to me, a hobby is something that you are supposed to do because you enjoy it, but I don't think it's supposed to take over your entire life. Right. Uh, that seems like work when you get it to there. And I don't think hobbies are supposed to seem or feel or appear like work. Yeah. And so Reddit, one of the popular social media websites on the internet, asked people, like, what are the worst hobbies that a person can have? And then somebody compiled all of the data, all of the answers, and came up with a list. So I don't, this is just what the internet says based on the things that people reported. So I don't know if some of these are actually considered hobbies, but apparently some people think that these are hobbies, uh, pranking people. People hate that. Uh, that's a hobby. That's not a hobby. That's I, just mean. Well, that's what I'm saying. But like people do it as a, as a, like for YouTube and for social media websites and TikTok and all of that type of stuff, obsessing with celebrity culture or obsessing with politics. Like a lot of people do that because they enjoy it. But essentially, that's like reading and following the news. And again, if people make that their their entire personality, like the only conversation you ever have with someone is about celebrity culture or politics, I think that's kind of weird. You know, a hobby is supposed to be something that you enjoy and then you can, you know, put it aside and leave it and then come back to whatever, whatever else you're doing. Uh, Things like collecting weird memorabilia. You know, uh, yeah, this people is a don't very like strange one. I know people do this. It's not a hobby to collect Nazi memorabilia. It's just a bad no, idea. I, right. You I can't agree. show that to people. You just like stop. Now, Simi, what if you came over to my house and you found that I had like a huge collection of He-Man memorabilia, He-Man <laughs> and the Masters of the Universe from the original cartoon from yeah. back in the 80s? Yeah. 
I would probably want to talk about that with you because I used to love that show. Right, exactly. So I think like it's okay to collect some memorabilia. Sure, but just but it's not, not the, weird stuff. The stuff involved like in death and destruction. Stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Other things on the list: gambling. I enjoy gambling. It's, it's not, not my hobby. whole hobby, but I. I mean, how about playing poker? That's a hobby for a lot of people. Sure. Okay. Yes, I, I think I would accept that. Okay. I would accept that. Uh, other things on the list are, you know, like drugs and drinking. Again, some people who Those make hobbies? it their their entire personality, you know. Uh, and then the list says anything that, basically the list is like, it's summed up as things that people love so much that they won't shut up about them. So, I, hmm. like, that's a lot of the things on this list. If you make it your entire personality, does it qualify as a hobby? So, I think you, Simi, have some great hobbies and you talk about them if people ask I, you about them. I feel like I have very run-of-the-mill generic hobbies. But you don't, like, you're open about them, but it's not the only thing that you talk about. That I think that's a sign I of a good hobby. I think it depends on the person. For instance, we have a fellow employee, a fellow co-worker here who works in the engineering department. And pretty much all he and I ever talk about, unless I have a technical problem, is gardening. Right. Because he's the super gardener and I have questions and that's all we talk about. He shows me videos. Like, uh, that's all we talk about. See, and that's where you guys overlap. I know and who I you're talking about. And I never talk about gardening with you because right. you I don't, don't garden. garden. Right. Yeah, and the uh, the person that you're talking about, the super gardener, I don't really talk about gardening with him either, right? So it's not like he is projecting that onto a lot of people. Right. You know? So I think your hobby is supposed to be something that you incorporate into your life. It brings you uh, joy and entertainment and then you can just sort of, it doesn't have to be forced upon other, other people. Now, I have a, here's a question to okay. me. Do you, would you rather, because I know like your hobby, like let's say gardening, would you rather your partner share your hobby with you or have a completely separate hobby where you guys go and do your own hobbies on your own? We show an interest in each other's hobbies, but our hobbies are quite different. However, what bothers me, <laughs> I'm going to get into the weeds on this one here, is when he likes to offer me advice right. on my hobby about, or asking me questions as if I haven't researched the thing that I'm doing <laughs> to death already. And, and so I got a second guessing me on something about, are you sure you should be doing that for, you know, what, and then I have to say, excuse me. Did you do any of the research on this? Like I'm experienced. Like I have a journal. I do. Like I keep track of everything. But when somebody decides to come in and do that and just suddenly put an interest in it, then I have a problem. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's yeah. Don't that judge me. Sense. Don't second guess me. Stay out of my hobby. Yes. I, I try to do that for his, but then I can't keep up because he has an awful lot of hobbies. So yeah, yeah. Don't yeah, get yeah. me started on that one. I feel like we could talk about spouses' hobbies for sure. Sure, yeah, absolutely. What's hobbies yours? are great. Wait, you gotta have yours? one. Uh, I would say skiing, skiing in the winter, and then maybe that's like rock climbing hobby. in the summer. Yeah, it is, but it's great. It's the, I think it's the best hobby that there is. Skiing. Well, you threw that one down at the very end here, didn't you? The best hobby that there is. Yeah. I would disagree, but thank you for that. You Scott. got it. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk some pharmacare here. What's going on? Well, I see the federal NDP is taking a victory lap for having finally persuaded the federal liberals to keep their agreement in their power-sharing agreement, and the, they've come to terms for a new national pharmacare. I see Jagmeet Singh doing a victory lap on this thing. Uh, good news for all of Canada. I just sort of, as a British Columbian, went, 
what does this mean for BC? Because, Simi, as you will know, British Columbia already has Pharmacare. In fact, it has a very comprehensive and very expensive Pharmacare program, and I just wonder what the setting up of a national program is going to do to BC's coverage. Okay, so we still don't have any word on that? I mean, it sounds like the negotiations on this have been going on for a while, federally. They've been going on for a while, and there's going to be a a task force and a legislative drafting and all that stuff. But look, I'll give you one example. Singh says, this is great. You know what? Contraception is now going to be covered. You won't have to pay for contraception. Well, Cindy, we have that in B.C., uh, you, you may remember, and I assume Singh was at the NDP convention in BC last fall, where Kaylee Lynch, uh, married to Premier David Eby, got up and announced they were expecting a child in June, and it's a planned birth. That's not why we have free contraception in British Columbia. She got a great laugh for that. But look, I mean, con- Pharmacare has been around in BC since Dave Barrett was Premier. He launched the program. And the coverage here, uh, my concern always when the federal government gets into it is, do we get the same coverage? Does it end up costing British Columbians more for less? And is it going to be as flexible? And I'm thinking of some of the stuff we've seen in the last couple of years. Contraception is a very good example. BC just added it to the list of things that are covered. Uh, The province cracking down on access to Ozempic uh, because... It's a diabetes drug that was being used for weight loss. And Americans were buying the stuff up in vast quantities here and having it shipped to them in the States. Whatever you think of the provincial government, you could be critical of them or praising them. In my experience, having a provincial program like Pharmacare is a lot more responsive than waiting for Ottawa, looking at what the federal government is going to want to do for every other province in Canada, waiting to see whether they're going to give fair coverage to British Columbians the same as everybody else. So I think the provincial government, now that we've got the federal program launched, we're going to need to hear from David Eby and Adrian Dix on two or three things. Will the coverage be the same in BC as it is now? Will BC still be able to add and remove pharmaceuticals from the list of things that are covered here in BC? And most importantly, will British Columbians be getting (coughs) the same level of coverage without having to spend more? Pharmacare right now, in the budget we got last week, Simi, $1.8 billion. The budget is up 14%. It's an expensive program. If it were a standalone ministry, it would be the sixth largest ministry in government. So it really matters whether this federal program, which may well appeal to voters in other provinces that don't have it, whether this is just going to make BC's program more bureaucratic or, another question, can BC opt out? You know Quebec is going to opt out. And Alberta has already said if it can opt out, it will opt out because it doesn't trust the federal government either. So this is an interesting question. Can BC keep its own program? The way we did with the carbon tax, right? We kept our own carbon tax. We manage our own carbon tax. And in general, I think it's a pretty good thing if a province can manage its own programs because it's less bureaucratic and less duplication. So there's a lot of open questions about this one. As I said, I don't, I'm not surprised the federal NDP is celebrating it, but I think the federal New Democrats who are members of seats in British Columbia need to give some assurances 
to the BC NDP government that this isn't going to change things night and day for BC. So the ideal situation would be that the federal government gives BC money to administer its current program. Uh, That would be great if Ottawa helped share the cost of a very expensive program. But my favorite line on all the coverage over the weekend is our National Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, saying this will be managed fiscally responsibly. You know, the way Ottawa does everything else, like Arrive Can <laughs> and so forth. Uh, that's reassuring, I can tell you. Not very, actually. Sarcasm on Vaughn's part. Oh, actually. I'm sorry. It's one of my hobbies, Simi. I know you're talking about oh, hobbies. Oh, so. I knew we would uh, find one for you, too. sarcasm. <laughs> I knew we'd find one of your hobbies, too, Vaughn. Okay, well, we have more to talk about with Vaughn, especially about our provincial budget. And I tell you, I still have so many questions, Vaughn. I was at that event on Friday where the Premier spoke to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and its members. And you really you do get the sense that there is more to come on this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I saw the questions. One of the big questions people have been asking is because of the crisis in schools in Surrey. Uh, you know, they're double-decker portables and all that. And I know you asked the finance minister about it to Katrina Conroy, and she said, oh, I was out in Surrey. They've got these lovely new modular schools. I'm sure that's reassuring, uh, along with the porta potties out there. So, and I see Surrey is now saying, well, they're going to have two kinds of school day because they, two shifts at the schools because they don't, they can't put any more portables in. So interesting response on that. I see the education minister was interviewed on this too. And and they're saying, well, you know, there's more to come, right? I mean, that's, that's the answer. The list of new schools in the budget, there's only one school being added to the list of new schools for the year. That's here in Victoria. But they're saying, well, you know, have a look at the capital budget. It's huge. And hmm, hint, hint, there may be more to come. So, yes, I think that's where we're headed. The premier was asked about the huge amount of money in contingency funding in the budget. I think it's $11 billion over three years. And contingency is just cash on hand that they haven't allocated yet. Uh, Well, it isn't cash on hand because they're borrowing it. But there you go. That's government for you. Uh, Premier was asked about what's all that money for? Uh, Is that an election platform? And he said, oh, no, no, no. That's to deal with, uh, you know, environmental crisis and wildfires and all that. Well, in a really bad year in British Columbia for wildfires, and we've had a few of them, yeah, you need a billion dollars to fight the fires, and the government will put that up, and it should But there's still an awful lot of unallocated money in contingencies that are going to be, they could keep the money, Simi, if they don't need to spend it and use it to pay down the debt. But that's not David Eby's style. He inherited a $6 billion surplus from John Horgan, and he spent virtually every penny of it. So I think you're right. Uh, There's a lot more to come. It's an election year. This government likes to do it with these big, splashy announcements. And I think we're going to get a big, splashy announcement in Surrey fairly soon uh, with Surrey schools. Uh, They've already told us, you know, that one that we've been talking about for years on the old Expo lands? The Olympic Village, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's coming. That announcement, they did say 
Oh, we'll be announcing that in the next few weeks. So it's not like it's a big secret that there's a lot more to come. Yes. And there were, there were a couple other interesting things that you kind of dug into the budget and found, too, weren't there? <laughs> well, you know, when you talk about what all the spending increases are, they, oh, these are bread and butter things for needy British Columbians. But a couple of numbers that jumped out at me, one is government advertising. Now, there's a huge increase in the government funding for advertising this year. It's up to more than $19 million. Uh, let's see, it was about $12 million in John Horgan's last full year as premier. So what? That's like 60% increase in funding. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that they're spending more on government advertising than an election year. That would, that's just a coincidence. Uh, the other one, that I, this one needs closer examination. I just noticed it this morning. Uh, uh, one of the retiring MLAs pointed it out. Uh, Horgan's last full year as premier, the budget for the premier's office was $11 million. David Eby needs $17 million to run the premier's office. And again, that's more than a 50% increase since he became premier. And I've seen no breakdown on what all that money is for, although we try to keep a count, Simi, in the press gallery of how many lawyers there are in David Eby's office. And at last count, there were six, not including the premier, who's a lawyer. Lawyers don't work cheap. So I guess a big chunk of that is to pay for the platoon of lawyers that David Eby needs to run his office. And a lot of um, advisors. I remember that when he first <coughs> became yeah. premier too, right? Hiring on a lot of people as advisors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have a whole policy and priorities office in the premier's office as if having the entire provincial government at your beck and call weren't enough. You need your own policy and priority offices. No, it's, a, it's, it's very bureaucratic. It's very huge. One of the big differences, Simi, between the Horgan government and the EB government is Horgan was actually pretty good at delegating. He tended to delegate. You may remember that with COVID-19, a lot of those press conferences, John Horgan wasn't even there. They were run by Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry. They're the ones who knew the healthcare file. And Horgan, as I say, by on the standards for a premier, was pretty good at delegating. I would say David Eby is much less into delegating, much more controlling. That may be a function of him just having taken over with an election not too far away. I think it's also his style. I think it's the style of a premier who is a lawyer himself and feels the need to be surrounded by lawyers with a very large budget in the premier's office, mm. one that is by far a record size. All right. Well, let's talk about the uh, Crown Corporation situation here, too. Ah, yes. It's BC Hydro feels like the new ICBC. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, and you know, the New Democrats are totally opposed to the idea of using Crown Corporations as, uh, as cash machines. There's my sarcasm again. Uh, Rick McCandless has got a good analysis out. Uh, we rely on him a lot. He's a former assistant deputy minister and keeps an eye on crowns. That's his hobby, thank Evans. And pointing out that, that David Eby, since he became premier in November 2022, has siphoned more than seven, uh, about $700 million on BC Hydro That's for two cash rebates to British Columbia. So you're getting a hundred bucks back on your hydro bill, uh, but it's being paid for by Hydro and Hydro's finances are not great. Hydro has a lot of debt. They had to buy, what, about 20% of their electricity outside BC last year. That's expensive. 
They ran uh, the $55 million in the hole on operating expenses. They had to take money out of their own deferral accounts in order to balance the books. And they had to go to the Utilities Commission and get a, f a fee increase, or sorry, a rate increase. So we're paying more on our hydro bills so the government can give us money back. And, I, you know, if they think that the hydro ratepayers can't figure this stuff out, uh, that just tells you how the touch the government is. Wow. Okay. So this is all stuff that we're going to be watching here. This, yeah. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole provincial budget thing. It's almost like it's a holding pattern. It is. And it, it, I mean, provincial finance, there's a lot of stuff in there. Another one that jumped out at me is the federal government is increasing its contribution to pay for childcare in British Columbia. Huge increase, over 20%, 25% increase. Another $200 million from Ottawa to pay for childcare. BC is a minuscule increase in its share, 5% increase in funding. The federal government, this is where Ottawa does it, you know, says, well, the provinces play a lot of tricks too, you know, and they do. Federal government will spend more providing $10 a day childcare in BC this year than the new Democrats and the BC government will spend this year. Ottawa is funding a greater share of childcare in BC than the provincial government, mm. even though it's the provincial government that always boasts to us about their commitment to $10 a day childcare. So interesting. So you can't find $10 a day yeah. childcare, federal government is spending more providing it out here than the BC government. Huh, so interesting. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Cindy. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Most family members spoke from the witness box and called the murders unthinkable, heartbreaking, a senseless act. You took something incredibly precious from us, one family member said directly to Veltman as he sat listening. You have stolen everything. It is a case that could change and shape Canada's legal system. For the first time ever, terrorism can be considered as an underpinning for first-degree murder. So why is this so revolutionary? Well, because, as you just heard there, of the Afsal family tragedy. This family was out for a walk in June of 2021 when Nathaniel Veltman deliberately hit them. Four family members were killed. Now, Veltman has been found guilty on four counts of first-degree murder, and the judge allowed and defined the use of terrorism as a motivating factor there. So how is this so significant? That's what we're going to learn about this morning. Dr. Jack Rosdilski is a professor of disaster and emergency management of terrorism at York University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Simi, for inviting me to the program this morning. So what was the path to get here? How, how is it that terrorism was allowed to be considered in this case? Well, this path uh, started back in uh, uh, 2021, as you, you mentioned, with, with the tragic uh, attack on the uh, streets of London, Ontario. But what uh, recently happened, as you said, there was an 11-week trial, which concluded in last uh, November, uh, which concluded with uh, Nathaniel Veltman being found guilty on the charges and what just happened was the sentencing process of the uh, legal procedure, where legal arguments were made for and against the um, uh, terrorism charges, victim impact statements were read, and the uh, convicted attacker had a chance to express remorse. And what happened last week, the judge made the interpretation and conclusion 
that the actions of Nathaniel Veltman were motivated by terrorism, and Nathaniel Veltman therefore received the harshest sentencing that's possible in Canada, which basically amounts to him spending the rest of his life in prison. So how does this change things then moving forward? Is this now a precedent that other cases can cite? Yeah, yes, I think we have two implications to consider. Implication number one is from a practical perspective, where I think the way this case has played out provides a model for how future attacks by homegrown, individually motivated violent extremists or terrorism terrorists will be approached by crown, crown prosecutors. And then I think second, there's also a symbolic perspective where this labeling of uh, terrorism in this case for the convictive sends a very strong message that certain mass killers in Canada will not only be labeled as criminals, but they will be labeled as terrorists. And I think in this case, uh, it's uh, very important, especially to the Muslim community in London, Ontario, where the attack uh, took place in their fight against uh, Islamophobia. Uh, I was in the courtroom when these um, when the information was provided and the judgments were rendered, and I can say it was a very emotional time for residents of the city of London. What has taken us uh, so long to get to this point? Is this really just the first time that all those circumstances have converged into one case, or have we have we not done this in the past because it was a missed opportunity? Uh, I think the legal process takes the time that that, that it takes. And um, when we have an accusation made as serious as uh, terrorism, the way that we want this to work out is that the accused has the full chance to defend himself and that the defense has the chance to present counter arguments. But what we've seen here as the legal process played out and came to its conclusion, the case presented by the Crown that the vicious attack was not only first-degree murder, but it was also something that was motivated by terrorist intent, was proven according to the judge. And I think this works to redefine how we look at terrorism in Canada. How much of a difference would it have made, in your opinion, to add this or to not add this in terms of the punishment that could have potentially been handed out? Because regardless, four counts of first-degree murder uh, is is going to be a very harsh sentence. Uh, yes, it's, it's a very harsh uh, sentence. It's the harshest sentence that can be applied. From a, a, from a practical perspective, the, uh, ter- the, uh, uh, the uh, terrorism judgment is not adding anything additional to Mr. Veltman's sentence. But how it may play into effect would be 26 years from now, and he's up for a consideration of parole. The terrorism designation may play into how that's considered in the future, but for most practical perspectives, there's no higher penalty that can be uh, Uh, given to a a perpetrator for first-degree murder other than life in prison. And Mr. Veltman is under four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder, which is also being considered 
uh, with a life in prison term, with just the terrorism added on top, I guess, as the icing to the cake, if one could put it that way. Okay, so what you're saying is that it kind of provides some parameters. So if, yeah, provides, couple, if decades mm-hmm. from now they go to court, he's trying to get day parole, and we're not saying he is, but if that were to happen 25, 6, 7 years from now, that would allow them to establish just a different protocol around asking questions. Uh, yes, and as this was a first time that a terrorism case against a Canadian was heard, by a jury of his peers, when this comes to the parole board, terrorism will be a factor to consider by the parole board at that time in the 2040s. Okay, so this is something, do you feel like Canada needs to pay closer attention to this? Can this be applied elsewhere? Uh, that's, that's what we're uh, kind of uh, thinking about right now. Uh, we've seen this uh, application applied to an Islamophobic act in Canada, and when we consider the uh, current environment, which is, uh, I guess, uh, contested in terms of uh, hate crimes, uh, individually motivated extreme violence, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Black racism, etc., when the future, when we see attacks take place, which may cross the line to terrorism, the question is, will we see the same type of prosecutorial approach applied to charge these antisocial acts, not only as criminality, but also as terrorism. Right. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you. That's Dr. Jack Rosilski, who's a professor of disaster and emergency management of terrorism at York University, explaining to us the first ever in Canada use of terrorism in the conviction, the first degree murder conviction of Nathaniel Veltman, who is is what he's convicted of was deliberately striking and killing four members of the Assel family back in June of 2021. Six hours of jury deliberation is all it took to find him guilty on four counts of that first degree murder. As a result, terrorism is now there. It is a precedent that has been set in the legal system, as was just explained to us. This is Mornings with Simi. So much great stuff to talk about from that Canucks game over the weekend. But just a quick weather note for you. I mean, there's blue sky in downtown Vancouver right now, and it is sunny. But I just got a couple of emails from people telling me it's snowing in Nanaimo. So the weather is going to be a bit wild today. Wet snow, rain, depending on where you are, and it's cold. So let me know what you see going on out there. Simi at cknw.com. Now let's uh, rehash the greatness that we saw on Saturday night. I think Canucks fans are feeling pretty good about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Simi. And this song, Streets Have No Name. So I miss it. Right. And this was the Canucks warm-up song during 2011, right, when we had the amazing cup run. And that was also uh, when the Green Men made their... That, that's when they became famous, right? Yes, was 2011. Huge. And so, yeah, you were mentioning before that the Canucks won against Boston uh, on Saturday night. Overtime victory, very big. And I feel, though, that to me, that story, the Canucks comeback, is the second biggest story of the night. The first biggest story from Saturday night was when this happened. Please welcome back the diabolical duo, the Green Man. 
Yeah, the Green Men made their return to Rogers Arena after nine years, and absolutely, the crowd went nuts. No one was expecting it. It was a uh, a huge, huge, huge event when they came in. The Canucks were a huge part of it. And uh, joining me now, Simi, to help us uh, understand how this all came together is part of that dynamic duo. They are called Sully and Force, the Green Men. And Sully is here with me right now. Sully, how did that feel to be back in the green suits and back in Rogers Arena after so long? It it felt incredible. I mean, we didn't quite know what to expect, and and we went in there like we were just greeted by just like such amazing people. Like the in-game team there just did just a masterful job putting all this together uh, and helping us out. And then once we got going with it, once we got into the game a little bit, uh, we realized the suits fit a little bit tighter, mind you. But uh, <laughs> once we got going, like people just kept coming up and like the nostalgia. People were showing us photos of us with them and their phone from like 10 years ago. They're saying like, my kid's never seen this. I was telling them about it. And it was just, it was an amazing feeling. Everybody was just having a great time. Yeah. Um, and-, and it was just a such a positive vibe you know it's really cool for sure yeah like the way that you mentioned the kids lots of kids had never seen it uh i'm sure you've seen this that like the vegan goldest golden knights uh, made some tweet of like hey we don't we don't understand we're too young to <laughs> this was like ha- something that happened before our time because they weren't even in the league when you guys were the big oh, thing yeah. well, what was really funny yeah th- i saw that that was amazing but uh what was really funny was like you could tell the age of people commenting because like we did the waffles and then, you know, people would come in like, what's the deal with the waffles? And then like a millennial would chime in right below them and be like, Oh, this dates back to this and this. And, uh, no, it was, uh, it was really cool, man. I think it was, uh, I think a lot of even like, you know, newer fans, even if you weren't there in 2011, you kind of had heard about it, you knew about it a bit. And so it was really just like the whole, the way it all came together, like the way the game went to with overtime. And it was just the, the perfect you couldn't have written it any better. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Against Boston, too. It was just so great. And I love how you mentioned, too, uh, the suits were a little bit tighter because another comment that I think a lot of people reacted to was just like, oh, is this the same guys? Because it's just two green unitards, you know, and maybe the Canucks have brought in some younger people. And it was like, no, no, this looks like these people have aged appropriately for what the green men should, you know, <laughs> like this, they look like they have, you know, put on a few pounds as the years do for all of us. <laughs> well, it was, you know, when we were doing it a decade ago, we had uh, these young, spry, mid-20-year-old bodies, and now we just got total dad bots going on. But uh, but I think we rocked it pretty well just the same. I think we brought the same amount of intensity and energy, and um, and it was really cool. It, it's kind of amazing. Like, I mean, we have like we do little, you know, cameo requests or yep. something, so we'll throw the suits on for that. But for this, it's like, it's kind of... It's almost like the only way that I could, like, the best analogy I can do is you ever see, like, Jim Carrey in the mask? Yeah. You know? Yeah, of course. When, and when he, puts, when he puts the mask on, he says, like, you just become this crazy wild person. And when you put the suit on and you go in front of 20,000 people, it just takes you over and you just become this crazy wild person. And it was just so cool, man, like, to just get right back into the zone, right? Like, we never left. It yeah, really and it, it really felt like that. Like, there's the clip of James Van Riemsdyk in the box and you can just tell that he is, you know, they try to act so composed, you know, and so just like, no, I'm a professional. I don't even notice. But you can just see that they're fighting the smirk so hard, you know, like you got it's. Oh, yeah. It's such a wonderful thing. So 
Now, before we get to the final question, how, like, how did this all come together? Like, did the Canucks reach out to you? Was this like a, a fan, like fans put this, explain how, how, you know, after so long the decision was made to bring you guys back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, to, to throw it back again, like these, the in-game team, there, it's, like it's night and day to what it was when I used to go to the games there. Like, it's just a party in there. And the way that they kind of articulate that and put it together, like we've been talking with the team since the fall pretty much about uh, zeroing in on like the right game at the right time. And, uh, and we picked this one and we were just kind of hoping for the best. And, um, and so like we kept a top secret, like I was in town. I didn't even tell any family members I was in town. Um, so they're not too happy with me, mind you, but that's okay. Um, and yeah, we just, we didn't tell a soul and then uh, just did a big reveal and big surprise. And, uh, and I think that was definitely the right way to go about it, you know, to catch people off guard a little bit. And, um, yeah, the in-game team, I just I can't tip my cap to them enough, like putting this all together and helping us out throughout the night. And, um, like, we kind of crafted the entrance and stuff together, and it was just it was just absolutely perfect. It was the perfect storm. Oh, yeah. As a Canucks fan, like a lifelong Canucks fan, it was so cool to see it and follow it on social media. And now the team obviously doing amazing. Big win on Saturday night. Some people are saying, oh, this is because, you know, come back from a two, two, being down to nothing. The green men were there. Like, this is something that we need back. Team's in first place. Obviously, we're going to be in the playoffs, hopefully have a deep playoff run. What are the chances and maybe you can't confirm or deny. What are the chances that we are going to see the green men down the stretch and through some of the playoffs? Well, I mean, you know, nine years ago when we hung them up, I, uh, I was asked that and I said, well, you know, never say never, but I kind of thought there's a very slim chance of that. But after being in that rink, seeing the reaction and just seeing the, the appetite for it, I'll say never say never again, but I'll also say my phone is always on. So <laughs> I hope, uh, I mean, I hope we can come back again and, and try it out once more. There's no plans for anything right now, but um, yeah, man, I think, uh, it, like I said, there's definitely an appetite for it. Yeah, I would certainly say there is an appetite for it. That's Sully from the Green Men. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Simi, you have to think that the Canucks are going in on this. Given all the attention over the weekend, I'm not tough to make a prediction to say I think we're going to see them again pretty soon. (laughs) Totally, and I am here for it. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, there were a lot of asks in last week's provincial budget that went unfulfilled. We talked about some of that with Vaughn Palmer earlier. Different groups, different organizations that were hoping for a boost and didn't get it. Like Dyslexia BC. There was $30 million pledged for screening and literacy supports, but critics say that is not nearly enough. Now, Kathy McMillan is the founding member of Dyslexia BC and joins us now to talk about that. Kathy, thank you for being here. Simi, thanks for having me. Now, Kathy, can you give us an idea of, of how many people need support who have dyslexia in this province? Uh, probably all of them, uh, but there's 20% of the population anywhere. Like it's uh, like universal. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Dyslexia is 20% of the population with 5% of that having severe or profound dyslexia, which could be considered disability. Now, this is something we're still get, getting awareness of too, isn't it? It is. We're... Um, School districts still do not use the term dyslexia. Some, like 
some of them do, but a lot of them don't even say dyslexia. Even psychologists tell parents that they don't use the term dyslexia anymore. It's um, a bit of an invisible, it's a bit of an elephant in the room, (laughs) uh, we can say, because uh, nobody really wants to talk about what really needs to be done, which is systemic change. Okay, what do you think needs to be done? Well, we need to make some legislation ensuring that all kids get screened starting in kindergarten. Um, This uh, $30 million is going for screening. We don't know who's doing it. We don't know um, the plan around it. We have no idea. And we've asked the ministry several times over the last year. I know that they've been planning something since last last um, the the education mandate in December Um, with dyslexia um, and in the United States I should back up in the United States they've been making legislation over the last 10 years and the legislation includes things like universal screening this change to using scientifically informed evidence-based instruction teacher training and all that kind of stuff. And I've been asking for the ministry to do the same, um, but they haven't answered any of my calls to action and um, or Dyslexia BC's calls to action. And um, so to make systemic change, we need policies, legislation, and we need accountability of, of what's happening for the students. So, Kathy, I guess my question here is, like, if we can't even agree on what to call it or how to categorize this, how, how do we help the students who need it? Exactly. So there's a huge push right now to change just literacy, and it's kind of fueled by service providers. You know, this, oh, we, when we know better, we'll do better type mentality. But there is a disability component to it, and when we aren't labeling it and we aren't calling it what it is yeah like you're you're shooting in the dark we go to the doctor we get told we have ADHD the 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 GP can give us medication on the spot dyslexia you have to pay three to four thousand dollars to get a diagnosis if you're not one of the very lucky ones that gets a diagnosis in the school Um, and it's not just a diagnosis we need we need places to go to get interventions like there's nowhere to go unless you pay can so you, can um, you give parents an idea give people an idea of what is the the range here of of conditions or symptoms that people might suspect they might be on this somehow they might this might have impact them um things like reluctancy to read um you know people that don't read books or magazines as adults they're probably dyslexic um people that have trouble uh basically dyslexia is a language based learning disability and it's genetic uh if a relative has it you have a very strong chance of having it yourself um just like having blue eyes it's genetic um so these are the kids that when they're little, they'll say peschetti instead of spaghetti. They will mix their letters up, uh, although letters can be uh, something that happens with little kids all the time. But if it's consistent, um, they won't learn easy words like and, uh, and, and, but very quickly because you can't see those words. 
um, they stumble to get the words they want. They, you know, they'll they'll be like, well, you know, the other day. They can't remember the days of the week, so they'll say the other day for the entire week. Monday? No. The other day, Mom. The other day. So, um they just have trouble with language. It's, 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 it's either they have trouble processing it. So um, they have trouble remembering some of, some of our grammar, some of our spelling. English is the hardest language to learn for someone with dyslexia, the, so, way, the way our language is structured. So then, Kathy, what can be done? Are there simple things that we can do in the classrooms? Are there questions that we can ask that can help us help the kids who need this? Well, we need to identify them as early as possible. The most impact we're going to have is in kindergarten and grade one. That is the absolute most impact. So if we're not trying to identify these kids and give them interventions in kindergarten and grade one, after grade three, the the way the brain is, the plasticity plasticity goes down and uh, after grade four, it's four times harder to remediate a child with dyslexia. So we have to throw everything we've got in that those early years, but keep in mind that we've got a systemic issue and we've got the kids in high school and and adults that haven't had any interventions and uh, we need a systemic solution, not $30 million going to God knows where. I don't know where it's going. Um, and, um, you know, the, the budget said that they're going to screen 15,000 was 150,000 kids, but only help 9,000 kids. That's only 6% of kids. And 20% will have dyslexia. So, you know, we need to be making plans that we can help all the kids, not just a select few. All right. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Okay, thanks for having me again. That's Kathy McMillan, a founding member of Dyslexia BC, uh, talking about the organization's disappointment at the lack of support. They, there was a $30 million over three-year uh, contribution or commitment made by the provincial government for screening for kids. But as Kathy points out, she believes that is not nearly enough when it comes to the kids who do grapple with dyslexia in school. And I'm sure some of what she described there is familiar to a lot of people out there, right? Just those, the simple things, the lack of desire to read, you know, you mix up words, the the words, it's so hard to concentrate on the reading. I mean, these are really common issues that a lot of kids have. And are we doing enough to reach those kids in school? This is Mornings with Simi. I know times are tough these days. It's really hard for people to find a good deal at the grocery store. So when you see a good deal, particularly for something like seafood, I'm sure your first reaction is, wow, that's an amazing deal. I'm going to grab that. But maybe we don't stop and think often enough about, well, why is that such a good deal? How can we afford to have seafood at those prices? And those are uncomfortable questions because the answers are also very uncomfortable. And this is something that our next guest has been researching. Ian Urbina is with us now, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and founding director of the Outlaw Ocean Project author of the New York Times article, North Korea's Forced Labor Program. And Ian is with us now. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Ian, is this an uncomfortable question, do you think, for a lot of people? Yeah, I think it's uncomfortable for two reasons. One, it's often difficult to get a clear answer because supply chains are so distant and tangled and opaque. So even if you ask the question, can you get the answer? And then two, often when you do get the answers, they're pretty dark because 
such you know savings often come you know at the price of human rights and environmental laws so how did you approach this you were going to write about this about is it the cost of seafood is it how the seafood gets to market like where did you even start you know so um we wanted to look at who the biggest player on the world's oceans is and if we're really focusing on the high seas or international waters the answer to that is unequivocal it's the chinese fleet you know they're bigger by a factor of 10 than the next largest fleet on the planet and a lot of seafood in canada or in the us um, even if it's not coming off Chinese ships, it's processed in China. So then we wanted to look at China and ask questions of, you know, are there worries about um, human rights and and uh, environmental abuses in that supply chain? And as we dug deeper into the factories themselves, the processing plants, we started discovering, you know, endemic forced labor in the form of North Korean workers and Uyghur workers. And given that we are talking about North Korea here, it must not have been very easy to be able to find any kind of information. Yeah, I mean, China is um, a black box, journalistically, um, hard to penetrate, hard to see in it. And the Hermit Kingdom, North Korea, even more so. Um, what we focused on was the state transfer of thousands of workers, most of them women, from North Korea into China to work in these plants. Uh, and, you know, it took quite uh, elaborate sort of covert system of journalism with a big team in North Korea, in South Korea, in uh, the U.S. and in China to sort of piece together interviews with uh, dozens of these workers themselves to find out what was going on. Can you give us an idea of the scale and the scope of this enterprise? You know, the U.S. State Department um, estimates there are about 100,000 North Korean workers in China. Again, remember that this is a big deal because in 2017, the U.N. Security Council uh, issued sanctions and essentially said it's illegal for um, any countries to use North Korean labor. Uh, so to discover 100,000 workers in China in various industries is a big deal. It's a big problem. Um, what we found was... Uh, large numbers of these workers are in an industry, namely seafood, that wasn't known before. We knew about logging and construction and textile, but no one realized that seafood was also a big player in this labor transfer. And again, the situations uh, of these women, you know, they get transferred into the country. They're in locked facilities. They are not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to talk to any outsiders. Um, they work brutal hours. Most of their wages are taken by either the Chinese government or the North Korean government. And what was very new and very dark was that in the interviews, it was revealed that um, most of these women had experienced uh, severe sexual abuse rape uh, by the managers at their plants. What strikes me, Ian, about this and how different this is, is that we're not talking about what's happening on the high seas here. We're not talking about the kind of lawlessness that we've read about before in terms of how the seafood is harvested. This happens after the seafood comes to port, doesn't it? It does. I mean, and, and it speaks to the bigger point that you made at your opener, which is that, you know, in our globalized economy, we get things, whatever they are, you know, our iPhones, or our Nike shoes or our seafood um, impossibly fast and impossibly cheap, but the, there's a reason for that, just as you said. Um, so, um, and and this is what this investigation discovered is that 
because of the globalized way that we get these savings, um, they're coming from very dark places that we don't see. And, and the industry is probably going to have to reckon with that. You know, the industry being Canadian, US, French, German companies that have for too long been looking the other way um, and not asking questions about what's going on in their own supply chains. They probably have to start doing so now. Yeah. Is it possible to have that reckoning? Because as we know, all we hear about is how much more popular seafood is becoming. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible, again, through work like yours and journalism. And, and um, uh, I think there's going to be continued pressure on um, these companies. Um, sometimes that's just shame, right? You know, media applies shame. Um, other times it's legal. Uh, these are UN violations. In the US, there's a pretty strict law as well that forbids any import of these products. So there could be serious legal consequences for the companies that now have been proven to be involved in these problems. So I do think there there is change, but you know, this is an ongoing fight, you know, um, and um, hopefully the journalism will keep the pressure on them. What kind of reaction has there been so far? You know, this is the third in a series for the New Yorker magazine, and the first two uh, were, again, as you say, about these abuses on the ships, and then the second one was about a different part in China, a different area, and Uyghurs. Um, this third piece got a very different reaction than the first two because I think the industry, you know, hundreds of companies around the world realized that um, we have the evidence and and they probably should engage. So. In this case, we had a half dozen companies that severed ties with the plants even before we published. Once we reached out to them and said, we found some worrying things in your supply chain, they immediately severed ties as they did their own independent investigation. The, the bigger question, though, is, yes, that's great. That's good news. Um, but what does an independent investigation look like in a place like China where you can't do unannounced spot checks and everything is hyper-controlled and you can't even utter the word North Korean or human rights abuses if you're agreeing to do business in a place like that, then are you really going to be able to investigate on your own? That's a big question that remains. Okay. So clearly there's a lot more work to come here, Ian, but people definitely need to read this and be aware of it. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Ian Urbina, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and founding director of the Outlaw Ocean Project, author of the New Yorker article, North Korea's Forced Labor Program. You can find that online now. You should check it out and read it. We should all be asking questions about the seafood that we're eating. Where is it coming from? We care so much about BC seafood, don't we? Care so much to make sure that we know where that salmon comes from. Is it wild? Is it, you know, make sure that you know. But yet, when it comes to international seafood, do we care much? Do we pay as much attention? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is tough times in the wine industry these days, particularly here in BC. But a lot of that has to do with, you know, the weather conditions and the crops. They're worried about that. But what about the reckoning of how we talk about wine consumption? For instance, have you ever heard of wine mom culture? Researchers say it has contributed to a big increase in women drinking, particularly during the pandemic. Well, what is it? And how is wine marketed to women differently? Well, our next guest knows all about this. Natalie McLean is the author of Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation and Drinking Too Much and joins us now. Good morning, Natalie. Hi, Simi. It's great to be here with you. Well, Natalie, that is quite the title. For your yeah, it's a mouthful, there. isn't it? It really, really is. Tell me, how did why did you decide that I have to write about my experiences? 
Well, you know, this happened a decade ago, uh, Simi. I call it my no good, terrible, very bad vintage, personally and professionally. And for the first five years, I couldn't even look at the notes that I had made in terms of what had happened. But over the years, the, the story kept ricocheting around in my skull. And I thought, I have to get this out on paper, at least, you know, as a private exercise in making sense of what had happened to me. But then over the years, I kept hearing stories, not just from women in the wine industry, but in you know tech and sport and the military and finance. Their situations were different, but the themes and the feelings were the same. So I thought if my story could help just one person out there, um, it's worth it's worth publishing, even though I felt like I was going to vandalize my own privacy. And what, and what did you want people to know about your story? Well, you know, I, you know, the rising from the ashes is very much a part of this, uh, because I think what a, a good memoir does is it's not so much what happened to you, it's what you did with it. And, you know, you need that lens of time to pull back and understand what the situation was and draw reflections on what happened and how you dealt with it. Uh, because, you know, even... Um, a lot of readers who are writing back to me uh, and sharing their stories, their their situations are different. They may not have gone through a divorce, but they've probably felt, you know, loneliness or the longing for love. They may not have been mobbed online as I was in social media, but they've probably felt some fear of the future or worried about their careers. And I think when you can capture those feelings into words for others. There, it's it's very healing. And I'll just mm -hmm. add, Simi, that, you know, it came down to, I read uh, memoirist Glennon Doyle, who said, write from a scar, not an open wound. And, you know, my family and friends said, well, okay, you know, you've done all the healing. Why write about it? And I, I love what poet Sean Doherty said. He said, why bother? Because somewhere, someone right now has a wound in the exact shape of your words. Nelly, let's talk about what led you to this, the wine mom culture. What is that? Mm. Yeah, we've well, probably seen some of those laugh out loud, LOL memes like, you know, wine is to women as duct tape is to men. It fixes everything and all the rest of it. And, you know, my first two books, uh, Red, White and Drunk All Over and Unquenchable, I wasn't a bystander in the wine mom culture. I was team captain. I called my glass of wine at 5 p.m. mommy's little helper. And so, you know, there's a bit of a, a lightheartedness to it. But I think if you dig a few layers deeper, Simi, it uncovers kind of some, some issues. One is that wine does tend to be marketed to women differently from the way it is to men. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether it's girls night out or whatever, struts or all, all these labels with little black dresses and, and puckered red lips, it, it, the message is that wine, uh, that women need a reason to drink, whether it's a special occasion or, you know, spa day. Whereas wine is not marketed to men that way. Uh, no one asks a man, um, in my experience, looking at all this marketing, why he wants to have a drink he has one because he wants one. And then if we dig one more layer deep, more deeply, I think that labels that power or that profit from powerlessness, um, we need to be more mindful of what's happening there because, you know, it's LOL, mom needs a drink, mom needs to cope. But underneath that is mom's feeling 
exhausted, thankless, whatever. So mom's going to thank herself with a glass of wine and then another one and then another one. But doesn't the industry use beer and market that to men in that way? It probably does. Beer is outside my scope. I'm a very hermited, single-focused kind of woman. Um, I'm sure. But, you know, I mean, the the beer commercials I've seen also use women in a very sexy kind of way. Um, But I'm no expert in in beer marketing. Um, It may well be that. But in the wine world, it's very distinctive. What do you think that marketing has done then for consumption of wine among women? It's driven it... um, to greater levels than it ever has been. You know, we are cash cows. We are wallets, not women. We are one of the fastest growing segments of wine consumers. And, you know, we always have been the purchasers of household goods, you know, from shreddies to SUVs. So it's it's not surprising that we buy 80% of wine, women do, and we drink 66% of it now. Um, and so, you know, you've got a lot of labels out there, more and more about, you know, relax, you know, detox, retox, you know, all this sort of mindful wine and yoga and retreats and all the rest of it that's, I think, you know, as I say, we we vote with our dollars as consumers. We've got to question some of those messages. And do you think women are drinking too much? I do. I was. And I think a lot of women are. And they're How looking you know? for ways... How did I know? Um, well, in the book, I explore some of that. Um, in Wine Witch on Fire, I talk about uh, not remembering certain parts of the evening, which, uh, you know, like at a dinner party, which is blacking out. It's it's over drinking. Um, I have uh, was in therapy and continue to be in therapy. I'm a big proponent of it. A lot of those sessions are in the book because people wonder, well, how does a, a someone who drinks for a living moderate her own alcohol consumption once it's got out of hand? So there, there are pivotal moments like that and that I, you know, explore in the book. And I realized I needed to recalibrate my relationship with wine. You know, I've been writing about it for 14 years before this terrible vintage happened to me and never had a problem with it. But once, uh, you know, my husband of 20 years wanted a divorce, this online mobbing happened, I had easy access uh, to wine. It arrived every day on my doorstep from wineries and agencies. And I had the, the the cloak of professional respectability. You know, if you saw a glass of wine in my hands at lunchtime, oh, that's okay. She's, you know, evaluating, writing an article, whatever. Right. But and I that, realized I had to get back. And that's what people didn't perhaps understand, Natalie, is that this was your industry, right? This was your job. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, and in the industry, there's a lot of blurring of the professional and the personal. So what I do, you know, drink wine for a living, I still kind of joke about it. Most people would think, oh my God, what a life, you know, sit around, eat bonbons, whatever. But, you know, even our quote unquote work events are going out to dinners with winemakers and drinking. And yes, I, I tell my online course students, the difference between tasting and drinking is spitting and thinking. Um, so there is a difference, but you know, in the world of wine, it's very blurry because it's all about hospitality and socializing and enjoying wine and and trying to push it, you know, the more consumption. Now, when this has been your life, when it's been the thing that you write about, the thing that you were trained to do, you were a trained sommelier, how do you cut back on that? Oh, one glass at a time. Um, So, you know, an alcoholism or alcohol uh, substance uh, use disorder runs in my family. So I had a double whammy there. It was my job. And yet it was, you could say in my DNA to overdrink. 
Um, so first I asked my therapist point blank, should I just quit, go sober? And she, her answer was, well, I think that could be punitive and ineffective for you. It is the right answer, by the way, for a lot of people or for some people. Um, but what she told me was, you know, let's focus on harm reduction first, and then let's go from there. Because, you know, it might be um, something where you can get from excess to moderation and do yourself a lot of good. Um, so we, we tried tips like, uh, if I opened a full bottle of wine, maybe pour half of it into a half empty bottle, and therefore I would be more mindful of how much I consumed, and it would be fresh for the next day. So it wasn't that mentality of, you know, clean all the peas off your plate. Um, and so there's tips like that that are sprinkled in the book, Simi, and I didn't intend for it to be a, you know, a self-help book, but it's kind of turned out to be that way in the the DMs, the direct messages and emails that I'm getting from readers. Right. It sounds like a lot of us could stop and, and maybe think about that, right? It's just, just how much are we consuming? Um, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Simi, and, and cheers. And, uh, you know, I'm still a big believer in the pleasures of wine, and anybody is welcome to join me at nataliemcclain.com if they want to learn more. All right. Thank you for that. That is Natalie McLean, author of Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. You may remember her previous bestseller, too, is Red, White, and Drunk All Over, uh, and works in the wine industry still to this day. And talking about, though, how the marketing towards women has really resulted in a a huge rise in the consumption of wine by women. And that's not always a good thing. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.